how can we envision the sweeping changes to entire landscapes? Ownership of commons, the air, soils, water, biological diversity, cultural back to the diversity is as critical as biological diversity. In this epic struggle to preserve a habitable that planet, is the only thing which is sustained. The place that you love is now under siege. Deregulated commerce is becoming a threat to the life on this planet. These are system problems. Our humanity is We shouldn't state. ask whether we can survive These are existential questions not. as much as they are systemic questions. Action informed by knowledge of get down place. Work. You're listening to the Schumacher Lectures, a channel hosted by the Schumacher Center for a New Economics. The Schumacher Lectures feature speakers who challenge entrenched ways of thinking while exploring how to build a new economy that serves both people and the planet. Any public program to preserve land or produce food is hopeless if it does not tend to right the balance between numbers of people and acres of land and to encourage long-term stable connections between families and small farms. Otto Scharmer delivered his speech, America Emerging, Western Civilization 2.0, in November 2013. Let's have a look at it. Thank you, Judy. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, thank you, Susan, and everyone else who uh, contributed to this event and series. It's a great. Um, uh, I'm humbled, kind of uh, being part of that, and um, I would like to share a little bit uh, from my own experience to contributing to what we all um, care about and what you so uh, beautifully articulated. I would like to begin with an observation that uh, looks at many of you, many of us, started this work many years ago. Today, when you talk about being that we have entered a time of disruption, that we are in a crisis not only economically, but also in terms of our civilization, where something is ending and something else is wanting to be born, you hardly meet anyone doubting that. Yes, we can, you know, maybe have different views on some of the deeper root issues, what needed to change or not, or what is it actually what's kind of wanting to emerge. But I find it interesting when you work with uh, people at the very top or at the grassroots level, across systems, sectors, and cultures, this, um, you know, the sense of that we are in a, we live historically in a moment of disruption, where something is ending that we can describe pretty well, different angles, yes, but it's the same thing. And something else is beginning to emerge that yet we cannot fully get our arms around. This sense is very widely distributed, and it's like we almost take it for granted. But let's think about when you brought, you know, when you go here on the stage like this, and some 10, 15, 20 years ago, you say the same thing, everyone would have challenged you. No longer. Now it's like obvious. The question is, what do we do about that? I think that's a major shift. It's a major shift that not only applies to how we think about the current transformation of capitalism and kind of the, um, you know, the disruptive changes we are part of, it also applies kind of to some of the deeper strands, kind of 
the deeper issues related to uh, mindfulness, related uh, to the new mind that is necessary. And uh, when I think about, you know, really, um, and, you know, what probably unites all of us here is that we sort of believe that, yes, kind of, we all can describe the surface symptoms of the current crisis that we are in, but what, where, you know, what really are the, the root issues here, the root causes? And I would say kind of probably the most important root cause starts right between our ears. It starts with our own thinking. In particular, it starts with our paradigms of economic thought that somehow have lost touch, lost touch with the reality around us. And um, while, you know, and there are like probably two, probably more, but really two major areas of blind spots in the current paradigm of economic thought. One is externalities, and we have talked about that one a lot. But the other one is what I would call consciousness. And that's almost not talked about um, at all. So that's what I want to put a little bit more centrally into the conversation. And I happen to believe that uh, at the root you know, of our, our, our current uh, uh, economic transition and transformation that we are in really is a shift from uh, an old paradigm of economic thought that uh, basically revolves around ego system awareness to a new one that basically revolves around ecosystem awareness, by which I mean kind of um, focusing on the well-being of all and the well-being of the whole. And uh, it is surprising that in economics, that mainstream economics, it doesn't play a role because if you look in any real company, that's actually what managers do. What leaders and managers do today is that you take stakeholder groups, in, in our real work, that's what we do, kind of we move stakeholder groups, and uh, from a state of uh, connection and transaction where that's mainly framed by ecosystem awareness, where I just see my own angle of it, and in all kind of processes and conflict uh, resolution and kind of developmental efforts that we have, it's basically moving to a stakeholder or an ecosystem awareness where I more internalize the impact that my actions have on my collaborators uh, on the other side. So that's really, so I'm not talking about an utopia. I'm not talking about tomorrow, I'm talking about today. It's already there, it's already happening in all organizations. It's just that the, the global economy is already operating on an ecosystem level, you know, kind of with all the interdependencies that we uh, experience. It's just our thinking hasn't caught up with that level of complexity. And how to really open up our thinking, particularly our economic thinking, to the complexity and the interdependency that we are already dealing with, dealing with in the real world, that's really what I try to, uh, to contribute to. And I came from Europe here uh, to the United States some um, 19 years ago. And back then, I was already uh, concerned about some of these questions. But I realized, I had just written, you know, my, my, um, 
my PhD thesis on something like uh, reflexive modernization of capitalism as revolution from within. No one understood that. But, um, and I realized that, you know, I could talk about all these things, but what was the value I created for others actually doing this kind of work? Zip, nothing. So I came here to the United States to learn to be more useful as a researcher. And I joined back then the MIT Learning Center um, um, around kind of Peter Senge, Ed Schein, kind of other people who in a very applied way brought together innovative thinkers and practitioners, and you know, in that case mostly companies, in order to learn together and learn by doing how to you know, create learning infrastructures for organizations and kind of, um, you know, larger systems. So that's really what um, brought me here. And when I look back and ask myself, what is it that I really learned um, kind of in these 19 years uh, about, um, about organizational learning and about kind of how learning and you know, development really works in social systems, one key insight that I came away with uh, is that there are two sources of learning. One is which are embodied in our current learning processes, organizationally in larger systems. One is basically learning by reflecting on the past. Learning by reflecting on the experiences of the past. And that's kind of the so-called experiential learning model. And when you look at all the best practices from consulting companies, from kind of all the great uh, in academia kind of uh, approaches, methodologies, and organizational learning, they're all based on the same learning model, which is that one. Yet, if you go out, work with NGOs, communities, companies, governments, the last 10, 15 years, what have we seen? We have seen like people dealing with disruptive changes where sometimes the past is not very helpful. And sometimes the past is the very obstacle to come up with a better way of framing or kind of approaching the situation. So seeing that, uh, you know, uh, made, um, you know, really uh, made me realize that there is an, a second source of learning, which is not learning by reflecting on the past, but learning by connecting, learning from the future as it emerges in the now. So learning from kind of uh, connecting with an emerging future possibility and then, so sensing that, and then making that happen. And when I studied 150 thought leaders and innovators in science, business, and society, I realized kind of the way many of these people work is not at all what we talk in, uh, about in academia in the, with the experiential learning cycle. So the essence of all, and of course we know it from social entrepreneurship, we know it from the creative process. The essence of that is uh, a different kind of process that needs, that brings us kind of beyond this, you know, compartment of our intelligence and requires us to connect with a deeper, capacity of knowing, right, that kind of resides more here, and that is more kind of out there, kind of connected with our senses. And that can be described as sensing and actualizing an emerging future possibility, or sensing and actualizing my highest future possibility. 
So how to, I saw these phenomena and how to do that really became a guiding um, focus. How to do that as an individual and also um, uh, um, uh, collectively became a, a, a guiding focus um, for, my, um, for my own work. And um, this is kind of what I just said is like concept. But where did I really experience that myself a little bit the first time? I remember I grew up um, near Hamburg. Um, my parents actually are among the pioneers of biodynamic farming in Germany. So 50, some 55 years ago, they switched. And um, so that's, of course, when you really track my own thinking, that's where I got like 90% of my inspiration from. Right? Seeing that kind of feel, you know, and what, you know, what I saw my parents doing with the land, the field, right? The field of the farmer. I basically try to do, right, stumbling, kind of try to do on the social field. Kind of what are these cultivating the less visible conditions, kind of of, you know, how of relationships, kind of of uh, collaboration. Now, um, so at the age, that was uh, in the um, late 1970s. Uh, I was at the age of 16, I think, and we, we lived in this um, old kind of 250-year-old farmhouse and so on. Every morning, my siblings and I would go to Hamburg to school by train. And um, the last, on that day, kind of the first odd thing that happened uh, was that I was called out by the principal <clears throat> during the last hour, and she told me to take my bag and go home for no obvious reason. But I noticed her eyes were red as, she, as if she had cried just uh, prior to talking to me. So that was a little odd took my bag, went to the train station, called home. There was no ring, no nothing. Um, boarded the train, and then, you know, after uh, uh, an hour kind of at the other, at, at the destination, no one to pick me up, no bus. So the first time in my life, I took a taxi. And uh, for the last eight kilometers um, uh, going, going to the farm, and half home, I saw it. I saw that there was smoke. Um, the, the, actually, the, the sky was black, and the smoke arose from the place where the farm used to be. Uh, the last kilometer, kind of the driveway was blocked. Uh, hundreds of people and firefighters and so on. I remember kind of running past uh, these people and coming to stop right in front of the fireplace. And um, my, you know, my senses, uh, so I, I saw, uh, so what I saw, um, what I saw was a gigantic um, burning heap of rubble. And as that, that, and I couldn't believe that kind of the world that I had been living in up to that moment, you know, no longer existed. Kind of everything was left was this gigantic um, burning heap of rubble. And as that picture slowly started to penetrate my mind, I realized that it felt as if someone uh, pulled away. I realized how much I thought who I am was actually connected to that. Only then I realized it when it was no longer there. So it felt like someone pulling away the, the ground under your feet, 
So you drop into really a space of uh, nothingness, kind of there, a, a, a little moment of nothingness. And then I realize, well, there's uh, still somebody left. There's still someone watching all this and, and take, taking, taking that in. And then something happened that I never, um, you know, by surprise that I didn't experience before, which is suddenly I felt like a little bit like elevated, uh, kind of above my, um, up, elevated upwards, and felt a clarity uh, of attention and a clarity of awareness that I have never experienced before, and felt another felt drawn to a direction that wasn't my old self, that wasn't the stuff that just went up in flames, but it was connected to a future possibility that I could bring into reality. Could, maybe. It's, it's, it's a faint possibility. So it's not like a very tangible part of yourself, but it's a field of possibility, somehow connected. So I felt that. I felt the, the energy of that. And it was like a clarity. It was, a, and I was... Uh, taken totally by surprise because I had no idea that kind of there is, you know, there's kind of the tangible self, and then there's this space of possibility that I didn't connect to before. So uh, the next morning, uh, my, my grandfather, who was uh, 87, came back to what should be his uh, last visit on the farm. He was in the final week of his life. Somebody drove him by, he exited the car and went straight up to my father, who was doing the cleanup work. And as you probably know, kind of from big fires, kind of it takes a couple of days to kill them, so there was still kind of a lot of burning stuff going on. So he didn't even turn his head to the place that was no longer there, and he spent much of his life developing. He went straight up to my father, took his hand, uh, and said, head up, my boy, look forward. And then they exchanged a few more words, and then he turned around and left. And this attitude, kind of you're in the final week of your life. You are, just something happened, and a lot of, you know, what you really cared about went out of the window. And you're, you may, your attention is not focusing on the loss, but it's focusing on kind of that field, that emerging possibility that through this event, becomes visible at the horizon. That's an attitude that had a deep, really, um, uh, impact on me, and um, that really inspired me to uh, kind of to ask this question, kind of, okay, kind of learning from the past, but isn't there something else? I mean, isn't there, in reality, when something new happens, kind of something else? And um, so uh, applying that... Um, and I feel like uh, today um, we live in a moment kind of where this attitude that I watched as a 16-year-old, kind of my, my, my grandfather doing, this, is, uh, this attitude kind of to not be distracted by you know, the, the noise, kind of the, the loss, but really focusing on what's wanting to emerge that's the attitude that over the next decade or two will be more necessary than ever and will be really kind of the um, foundation for us to bring this uh, economic transformation that we all are working on in different ways uh, into reality. So when I, um, uh, Susan, when I, um, you know, um, 
ask you, so, okay, what is it, what is it really you want to put into the center of this day? You, you mentioned kind of uh, America awakening. And I thought, America awakening? So that's, um, what does that really mean? It means, to me anyhow, kind of, it is, America awakening means, so what is kind of um, the part going away? And maybe it also means kind of a deepening of the American dream. And when I look kind of at the picture of what is emerging, so what is kind of, um, what is dying and ending and what is wanting to emerge, I would say when I am, you know, and when I try to boil down, okay, in terms of our society, in terms of the dream, the American dream that has inspired many here and many around the world, what are the key components of that? And what is the crisis? What is the civilization crisis we really encounter uh, today? And I would say um, three things. So first, kind of what is, um, and I'm not really an expert on that, but, um, you know, uh, the first thing, and when I think about the American dream, is pursuit of happiness. So it is doing your own thing. It's, it's also really what brought me here. Because I could do things here that I couldn't do in Europe. It's just the experience of many Europeans, I guess. I know at least. So that's, so that's the first piece. Then uh, another element, there is like, a, so that's like a cultural element, I would say. Then there's a second element. Uh, I write here a D for democracy. Kind of there's a deep aspiration and democratic aspiration that, you know, was born here, went around the world, and it's still kind of a, a defining piece of that dream. And then uh, the last one is a G, and that's kind of the economic dimension now, uh, growth. So the myth here really is that, you know, um, was shared and it has been shared by the mainstream is kind of that the growth goes on forever. So what is it? So that's kind of the dream the economic, political, the cultural, what's the reality? What is the crisis today about? Well, on the growth one, 1.5, so we are using 1.5 planets. In another way of kind of the, you know, what we are generating here, the shadow that we generate has to do with, let me just write, TBTF, too big to fail, right? So I don't need to explain. <laughs> Um, so that's like uh, two right, roadblocks, kind of that's where we are hitting the wall. Then um, democracy, right? So I only write three letters again, or in this case, Washington DC, WDC, as the embodiment of collective paralysis. We see it all over the world, it's just particularly visible there, like collectively we are unable to address the real challenges that we face as a community. So it's like collective paralysis. That's our crisis here in the democratic political system. And then, on the happiness, well, what's the problem here? Well, more GDP does not translate into more well-being. We all know these studies. That it has been shown many times in developed countries, right? In developed countries, more GDP does not translate into more well-being. So how can we summarize this with four letters again? ADHD, <laughs> right? Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. 
not only as a cultural condition, but also as a cultural crisis that happens in our classrooms. So we create classrooms that makes a big part of our populations, you know, move. But they have to sit. So we create a norm that doesn't work for many of our kids. And then we diagnose them and we, you know, medicate them. So that's, so it tells as much about kind of our own educational crisis here as about anything else. So that's the crisis. Now, where, so where's, what is emerging, basically? So it's the crisis, I'm basically saying, so it's like the same thing in our economic system, in our political system, in our economic system. So what is, where's the new happening? And it, as we know, it's happening all around us. So where is that, and what is that? And the way I would describe that is this. It's flipping the pyramid. And where do we see that? Let me start with education, flipping the classroom. It's like from the place I am working, which is MIT, it's an amazing revolution going on. You know, we used to have like 9,000 students in Cambridge. Now, really with the edX revolution, with the online revolution, it's a massive, basically all uh, leading universities put out everything for free for everyone, including certificates. So it's a massive, uh, so now it's no longer 9,000 you know, elite students, it's like potentially 7 billion users. It's a massive increase, uh, uh, democratization of re really education opportunities. It's an amazing opportunity, and so it's with the flipped classroom, also a possibility to kind of bring a lot of these lectures outside and then create the classroom in a much more co-creative space. But, of course, it also has the possibility that it's just getting everything, everything worse. So that kind of the quality, the deep learning spaces are disappearing. And yet, it has the possibility of doing that. So, so this is... So that's kind of the flipped classroom kind of as an amazing possibility to, uh, for example, with the MOOCs. So for example, um, just last week, I got the green light to create a MOOC on the economic transformation um, that we are in, kind of the, the, the economic transformation from ego to eco and to, and to create like a deep learning environment around us that basically, so we can use education as global grassroots mobilization, kind of where we have a global learning community on economic transformation, creating kind of local communities that co-create kind of the current economic transformation and societal transformation that's necessary and really use that as a backbone of making that happen. So amazing possibilities that are opening up here and that can really redefine the playing field. I'm skipping over the democracy because that's not the main topic today, but just to say that, what does that mean? It means to reinvent these old forms of democracy through new forms that are more direct, more distributed, and more dialogic. So it's kind of these three Ds that need to really, and you know, I think we, we, all, we all know examples of that, but you know, it needs focus and it's, as underattended probably as the um, economic transformation. I want to 
now spend a few minutes on, you know, what does this kind of flipping the pyramid and creating kind of this focusing on this emerging space, not the one that's kind of going away, but what's wanting to emerge here. I want to uh, say a few things um, about um, how does that play out in the third space in society, which is the economic space, which of course today is the most important one. We could say it's really all about the economy today and kind of these other, the cultural and the educational and the political, they are like side effects, right? They are like the, um, the, the side dishes to the main course, and the main course is the economy. So what then, how, how do we think? So what, what then uh, is the, are the big changes that are going on in terms of the economic transformation? And I want to... Uh, um, uh, just introduce something very simple here, um, just as a framework, which is, uh, you know, what is the really the production function? Kind of when we think about the economy, one way of thinking about it is uh, in terms of the production function, which is kind of nature, labor, capital. Then, of course, you know, those are the old classic ones. Then we have, of course, technology and management. When we look at really how you know, we put the production function together today in the economy, and then of course we have the uh, consumption side, and then it's the question: Okay, we have all this division of labor from local to global. How do we stitch it all together? How do we bring all these pieces together? So that's kind of coordination, and as part of that, you know, maybe the the institution of coordination. We could also say there's like an ownership piece here. Okay, if those are like key categories, kind of key, so when we think about the economy, then I believe the root crisis of the economic transformation today is that we think about, in theory, and we create institutions around all these seven or eight factors that I just mentioned, based on the old thinking, which is ecosystem awareness-based. And what's necessary is to reframe each of these key categories of economic thought and action in terms of ecosystem awareness. And that's actually what's going on. So I'm not talking about the day after tomorrow. I'm talking about what it is that we are currently already doing. So very quickly, kind of uh, nature, kind of we reframe nature from a commodity to something that is a place-based ecosystem that we need to steward. So it's no longer a commodity that we... So we reframe and reinvent labor uh, again from a regulated commodity to something that really is about the human right and access to entrepreneurial opportunity. We reframe our capital uh, from purely financial and number-driven capital to an intentional capital. So where capital is money is being used with an intention that you know, is connected to the well-being uh, of the whole. We reframe technology from system-centric and only serving elites to something that is more eco- and human-centric and that probably Jeremy Rifkin has um, described in his um, uh, uh, third industrial revolution. We reframe management and leadership from something that is like heroic individuals at the top of kind of hierarchies to something that is more collective, more distributed, and uh, where uh, leadership really is thought of from a system's point of view as the capacity of a system to sense and shape the future. 
If you don't like the word systems, just take community. The leadership is the capacity of a community to sense and shape the future. So that's uh, what's happening here in the um, leadership space. Um, consumption. Well, I think um, um, Juliet was here like a year or two ago, right, uh, speaking to you. Kind of, uh, it's kind of basically reframing consumerism. More uh, and bigger is better to collaborative conscious consumption. And kind of that's another area kind of many of us, many of you are involved in. And then coordination. So what do we see there? Basically, there are like uh, three coordination mechanisms in the economy today. It's hierarchy, competition in markets, and the third one is negotiations among stakeholders, right? Stake organized interest groups dealing with each other. And um, the fourth one that I believe is missing is um, awareness-based collective action. So what we need is uh, kind of pre-market areas of collaboration, kind of where we, you know, um, create kind of new areas of co-creative collaboration and where we bring together not the abstract interest negotiating with each other, but we bring together the key stakeholders of a system, be that educational or be that health system or other systems, and allow them to create a shared understanding kind of of the system and then to innovate at the scale of the whole system from an awareness of that whole. So awareness-based collective action. Where do we see that today? Two areas, I would say, most visible. One is crisis response, because all the other thing is broken down. Now we really need to pay attention and everything is coming together spontaneous. Uh, connecting and coordinating by looking at the real situation rather than, you know, uh, uh, other mechanisms. And second, local living economy, right? You mentioned it before. Why is the future showing up first locally and not in the other areas? Because in the local all kind of ecosystem problems are essentially commons problems, right? So the commons uh, locally are right in your face. You see it. You cannot, you know, it's very difficult to be in denial of it. The global comments, right? I don't see, I don't smell, kind of I can be ignorant of. So that's, um, that's why these kind of new ecosystem ways of organizing show up first locally, which is why that is an important uh, leverage point. And then, um, so that's coordination. The last one, ownership. Um, yes, we need, of course, new ownership forms. We need to advance the success stories of private ownership, kind of as the second class next to state ownership, and create a third type of ownership forms, which is uh, commons-based ownership, as Peter Barnes suggested in his uh, Capitalism 3.0, and that's, of course, another kind of key, which basically is bringing in, um, you know, not the... the three-quarter, uh, the quarterly perspective, like in the private sector, or the four-year perspective, like in state-owned um, um, forms of, um, um, state-type uh, forms of ownership, but a generational perspective, as Peter Barn has suggested, kind of with where the stakeholders of the next generation really um, come into, um, uh, into the conversation uh, in terms, and in, in that would be like an ownership form that would apply basically to the commons 
um, challenges and uh, opportunities that we need to organize around. All right. So many of you, um, you know, are working uh, already on many of them. And what, what I'm noticing is, so all these things, so I'm not saying anything new here. I'm just naming what's already going on. And all I'm saying is, hey, this is all belonging to the same picture. Often like kind of, okay, so, I mean, you talked, uh, I mean, so some people think it's all about money, right? If we only have like, um, and then others, it's all about whatever, whatever. I mean, you, you know our groups. So it's, so what has happening, and you know what, you know, what I also love about this gathering is that we are widening, we need to broadening and deepening this discourse and uh, really bring the change makers across these systems um, together. So, for example, um, uh, focusing on the uh, GDP, kind of a new, how do we really measure uh, new forms of, uh, how can we create and measure new forms of economic progress beyond GDP? We know GDP isn't useful for us, but what are the alternatives? So, we created uh, a global well-being lab, um, and... Um, the Global Wellbeing Lab basically is a very simple infrastructure that begins to connect to some of the innovators across, these, across this whole kind of equation here. And the way we supported them is that, um, so you mentioned um, Michelle, kind of, she was one of them. We had like the governor um, uh, of one of the, um, of Oregon, kind of one of the states here, and you know, uh, NGO people and, and, and community people. So from different places, uh, both Global North, uh, Global South. And then we went for one week to Brazil, kind of, you know, uh, looking there at um, uh, interesting examples. And the other one, uh, the other week we went to Bhutan, kind of looking at uh, GNH, Gross National Happiness, how it's being implemented, and how kind of alternative indicators of economic progress really can redirect both uh, the, the policy making uh, and also uh, the, 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 inner, the, the economic progress. And um, then, so that was like deep dive into two interesting areas. And then we basically said, okay, you know, you're all kind of very sophisticated change makers. No, go out, do your own thing. Kind of create, take the best ideas that you encountered or co-created as a result of that. And now let's move into multi-local prototyping. Everyone in their own institutional context is are driving some innovation based on what we saw. And uh, for example, uh, a year ago, uh, um, um, or a little bit more than a year ago, there were like five states in the U.S. working on GPI, Genuine Progress Indicator. Today it's 20. So that was, and we, some of the key drivers of that initiative have been uh, part of that lab. Then there's a, a whole bunch of other initiatives um, that came out of this prototyping and it's just, I'm just giving that as an example that all these possibilities are already there. It doesn't need that much to really connect the dots and to generate, um, uh, uh, to generate innovation initiatives that begin to link kind of uh, all these institutional innovations here in a more um, coherent way. I, I want to end with... Um, now, the question, so, what I, so let me stop here and say, okay, what did I say? I said, um, we are living in a moment of disruption. There is like something that's dying here. We see we are encountering. So all these problems here is really seeing the shadow of our old version 
our old dream, you could say, our old civilizational idea. And what we need to do is we need to deepen the dream. Kind of we need to flip the classroom, and not only the classroom, we need to also regenerate kind of the political and the economic system. We shared a little bit about that, and a lot of that is already happening. But um, what I'm also noticing is that you know, in all these fields, and uh, you, you will know that, um, you probably have made a similar observation. We have all these great prototypes and examples, and then when really do they go to scale? And do they really transform the system, or is it just kind of small stuff that makes us feel good? And then, you know, the, you know just the mainstream, even more powerful kind of moving so are we just kidding ourselves, or how can we? And so I have been uh, through uh, my life, and, and I try. I'm daily really asking myself, where is it that I can really be most of benefit? So I got like access through kind of being in a place like MIT uh, gives. You know, I thought, well, what I can, what, what can I do useful? So seven years ago, I started an initiative, which is tri-sector innovation, bringing together, realizing kind of we will be, we are moving into a period of disruption, but no one is preparing the institutional leaders. Yes, we need, to, we need social entrepreneurship, but we also need to help the next generation in these old institutions to connect with each other, to connect with grassroots initiatives, and to really create the foundations to uh, bring some of these um, innovations uh, to the scale that's necessary today. So what can we do? Emerging next generation of leaders. So I went around and asked um, companies, uh, governments, and NGOs, can you give us some of your best people and kind of we just go on a journey together, try to find out kind of how this, um, how we can uh, innovate together tri-sector, kind of by building platforms of collaboration tri-sector. Almost everyone said yes. There was one exception. That was a big surprise. Then it took forever. I mean, it's the first time we did that. It took like uh, a year. Everyone stood in their job, but it was like, you know, a week here, three days there sort of thing. And um, let me just cut a long story short. In the end, high-level personal transformation, high-level relational transformation, although they, you know, some of these institutions had been fighting with each other before, then they did prototypes, and at the end I thought, well, yeah, that's interesting. Like, uh, some of them were really good, and some of them, well, they tried. And so that was the end of that in 2007. Today, five years on, totally different picture. So what I initially thought was a mixed thing, now has a huge impact. I mean, it created kind of these groups, created initiatives that uh, founded new companies, uh, you know, venture, micro-venture networks, um, platforms of collaboration, changing policies, the way policy is being done in Indonesia is now moving, you know, uh, these platforms are now moving into other countries. One of them is China. Uh, working with the Chinese government. This year they sent us the um, uh, ICBC, which is the biggest state on enterprise in the world. It's also the biggest bank in the world. And um, as you may have seen, uh, the Fortune 2000 list for the first time was topped by a Chinese company. It's that company. So it's also the biggest company in the world. 
So there are some of their um, executive uh, team members and their high potential leaders came on, and they said, okay, now, now help us innovate, reinvent the financial sector. So that's now underway. But one exercise, and kind of it's a little microcosm story that I think is indicative. So they, we put them through a climate ch uh, change simulation lab. So it's, um, it's a half day. They enter the room. They have a briefing before. They enter the room, six tables. Uh, United States, uh, EU, other developed countries, India, China, other developing countries. They had got briefings before, so they each represent kind of their... And then the facilitator is uh, Secretary General of the United Nations and giving, updating them on the current climate change situation, right? Basically, it's, it's all fact-based, and then they, they need to decide and negotiate with each other uh, emissions cuts, right? So when, are you, uh, when do you stop the increase of your emissions? When are you starting to cut down and at what rate? So these are the three things. Then these decisions are being inputted into a model a kind of a science-based model of kind of, uh, you know, where all the climate change simulations, which is also being used for training kind of the real negotiators. And then the result is feedback to the group, and then they go into the second. I have seen this thing many times, and it always, I mean, it's like dire, right? It, it ends in a catastrophe, and, you know, people are puzzled and angry, kind of you see denial, depression, cynicism, all of that comes up. This time, it was different. So the facilitator uh, took more, um, the secretary general, he, before they did their second round, he gave them more like the option to, uh, to really think about, that he visualized what happens. Kind of when you decide that, here's what happens, and so on. He, there was more like an educate to seeing the outcomes of your own actions. And they didn't have a full breakthrough, but they almost did. And um, so I, I just thought, and when I, when I went home for that, that's just a, a few weeks ago, I thought, well, what, what just happened? Why was it so different than the other ones, uh, groups that I had seen? And um, there are like five, what allowed them to shift? Because as long as they just represent their country interest, it's just going to hell. We know that. It's exactly what happens in, in, in Copenhagen and all these other. So we are not nearly even addressing the situation, kind of the, 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 the seriousness of the situation. So why, what allowed them to shift? And here are the five conditions that I saw. One, you need to create the place, right? I mean, that's kind of, they walk into that room, kind of somebody needs to create the container, bring the right players together. That's the first thing. Secondly, science and data, right? Kind of, there is no... Everything is science and database. I mean, all, there is no kind of escape from that. And kind of that was kind of the visualization of really the um, um, kind of the current situation that all peer-based uh, science and so on. That was the second element that when you talk to them later on, kind of that really made them um, act differently. Number three, there is like a feel, an aesthetic dimension. It's the feeling dimension. It's not okay two, three, and then a typhoon, four, five meters sea level rise. No. You then go to, what do you want to see? You go to that website and say, okay, what's, what happens to Shanghai? No longer there. What happens to Hangzhou? Uh, half gone. So it's then when you begin. So there's like a feeling dimension. And I'm just giving that one example. There were others. 
so the aesthetic, so so activism, uh, civic and, and also social entrepreneurship is activated when something connects here. So that was the, the third dimension. The fourth one is, the fourth condition is making the system see itself. And so it's like. Um, they make decisions, blah, 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 and then kind of you, you put that in and you project that, and then you feed that back. It's closing the feedback loop between what we do and what happens to us. Look at what we are doing to ourselves. So that's kind of, and the fifth one is connected to that. It's, it's a facilitator who basically holds the space. So he was like, so it's holding up these charts and images and letting it sink in. So it's like me standing in front of the fire, kind of, first, you don't believe what's out there. It needs a moment. It slowly it penetrates your mind and it's sinking in. Exactly the same thing happens there. So we live in an ecosystem world, but our ecosystem awareness is how we think. You need, you need to hold the space for that, for that reality to sink in, to penetrate the mind. You can almost watch it, really. And then, so you need to hold that space. And then the group begins to act differently. Now, I'm giving this example because I have seen the same thing many times in other situations as well. And I think that's what we are missing globally. So if we want to transform, if we really want to live up, just uh, go beyond kind of these, um, you know, uh, the small successes that we have had so far, we really need to bring in these conditions, um, you know, to the places where it matters. And personally, I, you know, and, and I want to um, uh, uh, end um, on that note, Personally, so, if, so, so what, what I'm really saying here is um, we not only um, need, okay, so thinking about the new economy is really, for me, it's what does it take to really shift our focus here and to cultivate this rather than getting, being distracted by all the noise up here? What does it take? And I think it takes two things. One is a set of institutional innovations around these eight acupuncture points that I mentioned, right? Nature, labor, capital, all these things that I mentioned. So that's, of course, one it's institutional innovation. But the other one that thing that we need is a new collective leadership capacity, which is basically, you know, people, a new generation of people who can do what this facilitator did in the story I just shared. Right, the five things. People who you know can put these five things into place in every city, kind of in every system, kind of in you know, in, 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 in all the places, be that a classroom, be that you know, all the places that need to flip. How do we build? So we need the capacity. In other words, if we only have institutional innovation, right, we know that. We bring all the right stakeholders together into the same room, what happens? Nothing good. If Right? It's the same speeches, right? Unless kind of we bring in a new social technology that allows us to move from debate to co-creating something. So that's kind of the, the mindset shift. We, we, need, we need a social technology. I forgot what I said. <laughs> we, we need a social technology that allows you uh, to go uh, through the shift of, um, you know, in, in stakeholder situations from a debate style, same old, same old, same old speeches, 
to move to another way of um, dialoguing and co-creating with each other. Kind of a, and, and that, so to put that capacity there, that's the other condition. So we, we need the institutional innovation and we need this new leadership capacity. And what we are missing is a place that's really building this on a level of scale that's necessary now. And there are many ways how we can frame that, but that's where I feel uh, there are so many young people really looking for that now, and we failed as a generation to put this damn infrastructure into place. It, uh, we have all the elements, but they are not connected. We have the living examples, we have the methods and tools, we have kind of great inspiring change leaders in many different, but we don't have the platform that links all of that together and creates a landing place for the next generation to learn this stuff and make it happen at the scale necessary now. My so I don't know what to call it. I would call it, it's a new type of multi-local global leadership school that is focusing on the economic and societal transformation that's underway now that we describe here and that we'll discuss more um, uh, this afternoon and that cultivates, that kind of brings in kind of three pieces. One is research. Right? Really, what are we really learning? What's working, what's not? Kind of how does these, so these kind of uh, transformations and going to scale, so what, what, what is it that we are really learning and making that research available to our, all change makers? Two, um, creating kind of these uh, helpful environments on a systems level, these five conditions or whatever the number is, but it's basically, for example, the global well-being lab, kind of bringing these change makers together across you know, systems and put them here, put them there, and then those are small things, but we, we don't, so where we really begin to innovate on a larger scale, kind of, and in, in, in leverage the linkages. So it's kind of being in support of these innovation labs and kind of creating these conditions uh, at the levels uh, and the uh, places that are necessary now. And the last one is building the leadership capacity. And the, the, this kind of leadership capacity to making that available, really, um, at the end of the day, really, for every city, every place. But I think the way to start that, you start with a few places that are uh, connected with each other and that work from the same intention. And these places largely exist already in China, in Indonesia, in Brazil, kind of here. We know it's, it's kind of, the networks are already there. We are not putting it together. We are not really you know, serious enough to some degree to, uh, to, to connecting um, with the current challenges that we face at the level of intention, at the level of scale that's necessary today. So that's what my inspiration, also my frustration, kind of in terms of, hey, how long do you want to talk about that before you do something? It's like small, small, small here and, you know, all these prototypes, but when is it really that we put all of that together? Thank you. And in any case, it's certainly worth a hell of a try because it's all positive development anyway. To hear more talks like this one and discover more than 30 years of Schumacher lectures, visit centerforneweconomics.org. The Schumacher Center for New Economics Research Library houses the collections of E.F. Schumacher, Robert Swan, and other influential thinkers in the new economy movement. 
You can strengthen our mission by purchasing a copy of your favorite Schumacher lectures at centerforneweconomics.org slash order dash pamphlets. Our work is supported by listeners like you. You can donate to our cause at centerforneweconomics.org slash donate. This library and the Schumacher Lectures capture powerful voices for economic reform, voices with the strength to move and inspire. They frame and inform action, but are not themselves the action. At a time when our earth is in crisis and our communities face complex challenges, we are all charged with creating solutions. The Schumacher Center's applied work seeks to implement the principles described by these speakers within the context of the Berkshire Hills of Massachusetts. This work includes crafting innovative leases that share equity and improvements while holding land in community trust, building Berkshires, a local currency designed to democratize monetary issue and keep money circulating in the region, and engaging citizens in supporting the development of regionally appropriate businesses, creating local jobs while retaining local ownership and control. You can support our work in a new economy by making a donation at centerforneweconomics.org slash donate. Or call us at 413-528-1737 to make an appointment to visit our research library and office at 140 Jug End Road, Great Barrington, Massachusetts.